Amen. Thank you, Pastor Tad. Good morning, church. Uh, whether you're here in the room or watching live on YouTube, Facebook, great to uh, be with you and open up the scriptures with you this morning. We'll be in Acts chapter 14, as Pastor Tad prayed. If you're using one of those blue Bibles that are out the back here in the auditorium, we'll be on page 538 in those Bibles. A couple things real quick before we jump into uh, the text. Uh, first, uh, we will be doing a, a sermon Q&A later today. So if you're on the live stream, you'll be able to watch that immediately. Those of you here in the room, you can catch that later in the week on uh, YouTube. And just text that number with any questions that you might have. And uh, second, just wanted to thank uh, all the brothers who preached the last couple of weeks while I was gone. Um, gone from the pulpit, uh, Andy here in the room, Brandon, uh, Tad, Eric, thank you all for the time that you invested. Originally, I was scheduled to be on sabbatical, uh, but with the pandemic, the elders and I decided it'd be best to stay here, but still wanted to uh, allow those brothers the opportunity to preach, and what a gift we have as a church that there's that many people here in, in-house who can do that well. So thank you guys for feeding us the scriptures. Uh, today, We'll be in Acts chapter 14, and we cross what we might call uh, the Rubicon in the book of Acts. We are officially at the halfway point, and after this morning, we'll be on the downhill slide through the rest of the book. And I think that marks a good spot for us to take just a couple of minutes to remember where we've been together these last few months. The Gospel of Luke, so if you think of the books in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke was a physician and a historian, and he set out in two volumes to record the ministry of Jesus. In the first volume, in Luke, we learn about uh, Jesus being God in flesh, and how Jesus came to earth, lived a perfect life, died a substitutionary death, and rose victorious. Amen? He describes in Luke all of that in summary form, and since then that has served as one of the great biographies of Jesus' life. But that's just volume one. Volume two is the book of Acts, written by the same person, and Acts is about not what Jesus began to do, but what he's continuing to do. This time, not in person, physically, but rather through his spirit among his people. And so that's what Acts is ultimately about, the triumph of the word about Jesus as it spread all over the ancient world. We watched uh, early on in the book of Acts as the story began to unfold in Jerusalem, and then as the persecution of hammer, the, the hammer of persecution fell, that gospel began to spread outward out of Jerusalem not in an organized way, but simply as average, everyday Christians fled the city of Jerusalem in order to uh, flee persecution and share the gospel. We've marveled together, as Tad helped us remember in his prayer, that Jews and Samaritans, Africans and Gentiles, all through Jesus, can gather around the feast of eternal life at the Father's table of grace. That's what Jesus provides us. 
In the last few weeks, as we heard from Andy, Pastor Andy, we've been studying what's historically been called uh, Paul's first missionary journey. That spans uh, Acts chapter 13 and 14. In the beginning of Christianity, remember that everything was centered in Jerusalem. But by this point, that's not true anymore. At this point in Acts, no longer is the Jerusalem church the sole hub of church planting that has now spread outward into new places, including Antioch. Antioch is a church planting church. As we saw at the beginning of Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas were sent by that church to do church planting around the world. On this first great mission trip, so if you think of Acts 13 through 14, those two chapters, Paul and Barnabas traveled some 895 miles. Some of that by boat, but most of that by foot. That's a long ways. And Andy showed us their first two stops. Today we'll come to the last three on this trip. Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. I hope this morning as we look at these three cities that you'll be encouraged about what God is doing in our city. If you would start with me in verse 1 of Acts chapter 14. Now at Iconium, they, that's Paul and Barnabas, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their mind against the brothers. So they remained a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to his word of grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Gentiles, and some sided, some sided with the Jews, and some with the apostles. When, he had, when an attempt was made by Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and stone them, they learned of it and they fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Laconia and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Church, what happened in the city of Iconium is representative of the mission of the church throughout the book of Acts and indeed throughout time. So consider with me three aspects of that mission from this paragraph. Number one, notice the apostles' typical approach to mission. When, when the apostles went into a city, we see this especially the most clearly in the ministry of Paul. When the apostles went into a new city to start a new church, they began with what we might consider low-hanging fruit. They started first at the synagogue. That's where they would go to share the gospel first. Why? Why go to those who would strongly disagree with who Jesus was? Well, it's because of all the other things they agreed on. The people worshiping in the synagogue already believed in one true God. They already held to what we would call the Old Testament. They already knew the Bible's position on creation and the fall. They already knew the way in which Adam messed up, that 
wrecked the people then forward. They already knew of a coming Messiah. These were all things that Jews and Christians agreed on. So in short, while there were certainly things they disagreed on, there was more in the beginning that they could agree on. And so it made the most sense in a new work, in a new town, to start among those people. I think many times as we consider evangelism in our own day, we would be helped by this approach. Oftentimes when we think of evangelism today, we think of going to first to the hardened atheist. Now, of course, the atheist needs Jesus. That's true. But you might want to consider, friends, in everyday life as you're seeking to share the gospel, that the greatest probability for evangelistic fruit lie not with the hardened atheist, but with people of other faiths. So consider your friends who are Jewish or who are Catholic or who are Muslim or who are Mormon. These are people who already believe there is a God and these are all religions that would trace their origin back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's more to agree on in the beginning than there is to disagree on. Evangelism is best done starting not with what you disagree on, but with what you agree on. So friend, as you're going through everyday life, look for people like this to share Christ with. Now a second aspect of what happened in Iconium, that's just normal. This is typical for how the mission of the church moves forward is notice the response of the gospel. Verse 4 records that in this city there was a divided response. A divided response. Wherever the gospel is shared with a group of people, it's incredibly common, it's typical, that among all the hearers, some will believe in Jesus and some will remain in opposition to Jesus. And that's certainly what happened in Iconium. Some bent the knee to Jesus and were saved. Others stiff-armed the gospel. Friend, are you discouraged in your evangelistic efforts? Church, are we discouraged in our efforts? If so, then may we be helped by this chapter of our Bible. You see, if Paul's preaching was ineffective at persuading everyone. Why would we think ours would be better than his? <laughs> See, our job as individual Christians and collectively as a church is not to convert anyone. That's not something that's within our power to do. No, we are to share Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit trusting God to save. It's only God that can do that. Christian, if you've been sharing the gospel with a friend or a family member who thus far has refused to believe, then it's not because you've just not come up with the right set of words. It's not that your argument has been unpersuasive because you should have done it better. No. Take that 
heavy boulder off your back that is not yours to carry. You share, God saves. That's how this works. Now, yes, we pray, we weep, we mourn, we long for people to come to know Jesus. And yet we don't carry something that's not ours. The burden of the result of evangelism lies most sovereignly in God and secondarily in the response of each individual person. It does not lie in the witnesser. Some believe and some reject. That's what happened in Iconium and that's what continues to happen today. Now friend, if you're listening to this message and you're not a Christian, don't miss the little brilliant phrase in verse 3 that describes what the gospel is. It says, this or the word of His grace. That's a beautiful way of describing the basic message of the whole Bible in just a few words. The word of His grace. Friend, I don't know exactly if you are new to Christianity what you've heard Christianity is. But if you've heard it as something other than that, then you haven't actually heard Christianity. You see, Christianity is not primarily a message about what you ought to do for God. Christianity is not primarily a set of morals or ethics or behaviors that you must perform in order for God to do something in return. No, that's not Christianity. Now, does Christianity include those things? Yes, of course. But that's not the heart of Christianity. You see, the heart of Christianity is that there is a God who longs to be known and loved and cherished. There is a God who yearns to share himself. There is a God who loves to forgive and empower people made in his image. There is a God who wants to be known. That, friend, is Christianity. Humanity has rejected that God, and although he certainly had the right to, God's response to humanity's universal rejection was not a universal rejection in return. God's reaction was to send Jesus Christ. God himself. Jesus ultimately proved his love by dealing with sinners' rebellion at the cross. Therefore, friend, if you turn from your sin and turn to Jesus today, you can be caught up in a relationship with God and his people that will go on forever. That's what Paul meant when Paul said that he was sharing a word of grace. I want to encourage you today, if you've never responded to that gospel and you believe it, not to wait. To even now, as I teach, that you would pray. There's no special formula. Just go to God in prayer. Tell Him you turn from sin, you turn to Him, and you believe in this Jesus Christ. 
Maybe you have questions. You want to talk more? We'd love to hear from you. Feel free to stick around on the patio and visit a few minutes afterwards today. If you're watching online, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at chuck at churchonmill.org. Now finally, in addition to this typical evangelistic approach that we see and this typical response, we find the resolve of the church. Now if you look at verse 3 closely, you'll see it begins with what word? Somebody in the room shout it out for me. Not all at once. So, there is so much in that so. As Paul and Barnabas shared the message of grace, unbelieving Jews organized opposition against them. Meaning, they got together in a room, they planned a way in which to try to discredit Paul and Barnabas, and then they went out infecting, spreading that virus. It says they poisoned the well. And then we get to that little word, so. So, Paul and Barnabas stayed even longer and preached God's grace even more. I love that. Oh, that there were more Christians and churches like that today. Christians and churches not surprised or frightened by opposition. Christians and churches who don't hide when they're opposed. Christians and churches who don't run when things are hard. Christians and churches who don't expect our mission to share Jesus to be without pain or without disappointment. The resolve to share. The resolve to stay. The same Spirit who empowered Paul and Barnabas to do so is the same who empowers us to do it together today. But notice in that paragraph that it's also true that the same resolve that empowered them to share and that word so, so they stayed longer than they planned to, is also the same resolve that empowered them to leave. That can feel confusing, can't it? I mean, if we put it in, in our terms today, in terms of application, how many times do I keep sharing Jesus with someone? How many times do I do it? When they've told me again and again and again and again they're not interested. Well, according to this text, if we would use this as an example, they continued sharing even in the context of opposition until it was clear if we stay, we're going to get killed. Then they went on to the next city. So as you share Jesus with somebody, just keep sharing until they threaten to kill you then you should move on to the next person. Obviously, I'm kidding. But there is a time to say, I've done all I can. The mission must move ahead. I'm entrusting these people to God. Perhaps God will send others. I don't pretend to know some magic formula through which you can reach that conclusion. No, we simply have to share and trust that God will lead. But even as Paul and Barnabas moved on from Iconium, 
let's move on as well. They went from that city to Lystra. Lystra from Iconium to Lystra is about exactly a marathon. And so we're going to jump there in verse 8. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking attently and seeing that his faith had been made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Laconian. I I would read it in Laconian, but I'm just going to be humble. The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas, they called Zeus. And Paul, Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to the living God, who made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that's in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Now, first thing we should notice here is that this typical pattern we've just talked about in the previous paragraph isn't true in this text, in this city. Notice there's no mention of a synagogue. There's no preaching to the Jews. Why? Well, almost certainly it's because there weren't any. You see, it took 10 men in an ancient city for there to be enough warrant to build a synagogue. And in a city where there was not a synagogue, it most certainly means there was very little, if any, Jewish presence. Now, history tells us that Lystra was a remote, backwoods, uneducated town. It's up in the hills. It was under Roman rule, but because of its location because of its relative size and unimportance. They just didn't get messed with very much. And so it it had retained, all these years later, its Greek focus and influence, which is why they still spoke Laconian and they still worshipped according to the Greek gods. Now, as churches work to make disciples and plant churches, Notice that our evangelism must be fixed enough to know the basic content of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet, it must be flexible enough in its presentation and methodology that it doesn't get in the way, that the methodology doesn't prevent or prohibit a clear hearing of the gospel. And so the approach that Paul and Barnabas used in Lystra was not exactly the same as what they did in Iconium, but the basic gospel message would still have been shared. 
To put that a whole different way, there is one gospel, but there is not one right gospel presentation. There is only one truth of how to be saved, but there are many ways to share that one truth. As Paul and Barnabas shared the gospel of grace in this new city, as God chose to demonstrate the truthfulness of that message with the healing of the crippled man, something really shocking happened. Did you catch it as we read? The people of Lystra began shouting in their own tongue that these were Greek gods in human form. When Paul and Barnabas realized what was going on, they, they tore their clothes, which was an ancient way of expressing the deepest form of lament. The last thing Paul and Barnabas wanted was the praise of people. What a helpful reminder for us. It is, of course, a wonderful thing to receive encouragement from people. It is something else to receive something of their praise. Now notice in verses 15, 16, and 17, this summary that we're given of Paul's spontaneous sermon to this praise of people. And notice, if you remember, from the last couple of weeks, particularly last week, how different that sermon is than the one Paul had preached in another city. Back in Acts chapter 13, the sermon Andy helped us to learn is so clearly organized around Old Testament explicit references to Jesus and His gospel. And yet here, in the very next chapter, the very same preacher There is no quotation from the Old Testament. There is no mention of, don't you remember what the prophets said? Why? Well, friend, it's because these are pagan people who believed in a pantheon of gods. They didn't have copies of the Old Testament. They didn't know the message of the Old Testament. And so again... You start in gospel presentations with what you can agree on and equally share. And that's what Paul did. Paul looked not to explicit reference to the Old Testament. Rather, he looked out and around to the fact that even though they didn't know the Old Testament, they still were accountable to God. Why? Well, because God was their creator. And God had given them what theologians call common grace. Friend, whether you are someone who in a secular realm would be considered a decent, upright person, or you are someone who would be regarded as rather wicked, God in His kindness has given both food to eat, relationships to enjoy, 
and a whole host of other things. This is what Christians call common grace. That God, in some ways, is good to all kinds of people, to all people everywhere. Now, the mention of rain is a bit hard to hear. God's holding out on us there. We do not have that form of common grace. But notice that Paul's gospel presentation began with what they would have known and had access to and have agreed on. Don't start with the most contentious issues in evangelism. Be, begin with agreement. Use the smooth runway of agreement to get gospel conversations off the ground. And then once you're up in the air, go to war. But you've got to be up in the air first. Now let's move on. Verse 19. Jews came from Antioch in Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. Ouch. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned. So they they. they looped back around to all the places they'd already been. They went to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. There are hours of important things to talk about in this paragraph. I want to encourage you this week, whether it's on FaceTime or actually meeting with somebody in person, to get together with another fellow church member, read through that paragraph again, and then just talk about the questions that you have and consider its application to our own experience as a church. But for time's sake, let me just point out a few things to try to get the conversation started. Number one, consider the attempted execution of Paul. Way back earlier in our study, in the spring, we came to Acts chapter 7. In Acts 7, you may remember, someone named Saul held the cloaks of the people who threw stones at Stephen. That Saul is the same person here as Paul. Holding the cloaks is a way of saying not, my shoulder was sore, so I let other people do the throwing. No, this, this meant that Paul was there in charge. He oversaw, he supervised the execution of the first Christian martyr. And yet here, that same person is the one being stoned. Having come to know Jesus, everything changed for Paul. This time, he's not the one doing the beating, overseeing it. No, he's the one left, supposed to be dead. Only the gospel explains that. Church, the gospel of Jesus Christ can change anyone. Amen? It's changing you. It's changing me. 
changing others you know that don't know Christ yet. If Jesus can change Paul in that dramatic way, he can change anybody. Now second, notice the supernatural resolve of the people of God. I mean, just imagine the scene. Paul is laying bloody, swollen, deformed, under a pile of stone. Christians have gathered around him, mourning his death. And then all of a sudden, boop, an eye opens. A foot moves. An arm wiggles. And then he gets up. The rocks had knocked him unconscious, but they had not killed him. Standing as a bloody mess, what does Paul do? He walks back to town. Can you imagine the murmurs of the crowd as the guy they just tried to kill walks back in, sleeps on it, and then moves on to the next town to repeat the same? Brothers and sisters, This suffering is not an anomaly in the history of the church. The normative pattern for the people of God is that the proclamation of the gospel leads to persecution, which leads to perseverance. Opposition, suffering, and hardship are normal. They are typical. Consider, for example, the fact that you hold in your lap this morning a full English translation of the Bible. Do you know how that happened? That happened because John Wycliffe, hundreds of years ago, was willing to undergo severe hardship and banishment from the religious authorities of his day in order that you could have a copy of God's Word in your own tongue. And that is just one of many, 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 many examples. Christianity does not inoculate Christians from the difficulties of this life. That is not what the gospel is for. Church, consider the hardships in our own day. Quarantine is difficult. Being stuck inside, and it's 110 degrees outside, and all of our normal rhythms of life have been interrupted, and there is no end in sight. This sucks. This is not fun. This is real suffering. But this suffering, brothers and sisters, does not mean that God is not good nor that he has turned a blind eye to our trial. The only way you can believe that is if you're so young that you've not yet encountered hardship or that you are only aware of the last couple of decades of history of the church in America. That's it.
Church, it is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. And for almost all of the history of the church, only except the last tiny little sliver of time in the United States, has the church not faced significant trial. Paul got up. And even when Paul went back to his sending church in Antioch to give report for what happened, we know opposition is normal because he doesn't say anything about it, apparently. His report in the last paragraph, which we don't have time to read, isn't, Antioch, you sent me and look what happened to me. His report is simply, listen to the great news of more people coming to know Jesus, more churches started, they've got elders, and now they're going to repeat the process. The Word of God was victorious. No amount of opposition can hinder the unstoppable triumph of the Word of God to make disciples, plant churches, and strengthen them in the faith. Beloved, if you this morning are beaten down and discouraged by the present hardship we are all in together, then cast yourself on the mercy of God. Simply because the trial we are facing today hasn't been caused by the the throwing of rocks by others, although I'm not sure that we're all that far from it on social media. The opposition that we are facing, the trial that we are encountering, is still a form of suffering. These are not easy days to walk in fellowship with other Christians, and to live the, quote, good life with Jesus. And so ask God to help you. Church, COVID-19 has not put our mission to make disciples and plant churches on hold. And no personal individual suffering has somehow knocked you off kilter in such a way that God doesn't want to be working through you even now. And so I want to encourage you. Get up. Are you knocked down? Have you been drug out of town? Do you look dead? Get up! The same power that raised Paul is the same power that would raise you. Keep staying engaged in your church, in the mission we have together, and in persevering each day. For this is normal. Christianity. Let's pray. Father, we pray that the events in these three ancient towns would empower us today to live out the gospel in Tempe. I pray for the discouraged brother or sister this morning, that you'd bless them and help them, that you'd strengthen them and motivate them that you'd empower them and encourage them. In Jesus' name, amen.